Can Classical Liberalism Be Saved? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Mike Munger. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Mike Munger. Mike is a professor of political science, economics, and public policy at Duke University. His academic degrees are from Davidson College, Washington University in St. Louis, and Washington University. His research interests include regulation, political institutions, and political economy. And he has been on the podcast with me more than once before, and we encourage you to check out those episodes in the backlog for sure, as they were great conversations. He is the author of too many things to list, like books and articles, of course, and one of his essays that appears in the winter 2023-24 issue of the Independent Review is called The Classical Liberal Diaspora, and that was the inspiration for our conversation today. Mike, welcome back again to The Curious Task. It is a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Always great to have you on, Mike. And as you know, we base each episode on a theme and question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, can classical liberalism be saved? Um, And before we talk about whether you think classical liberalism can be saved, let's talk about why classical liberalism might need saving. Is there something rotten in the state of liberalism, Mike, that has caught your eye that we need to talk about whether or not this whole thing needs to be saved? Somewhere around five or seven years ago, I noted a lot of young conservatives were really skeptical of what I consider to be the core of conservatism in the United States. Now, I should be careful. The core of conservatism in the United States is different than it is in most countries. The United States actually has a liberal tradition. And there are problems with the three core documents creating the United States. So the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and then the actual Constitution, which was rewritten after the Articles of Confederation. And it's interesting, the the part of the Articles of Confederation that welcomed Canada to be an additional U.S. state at any time, It's the offer is still open. So as far as I can tell, the, the, that, that was never withdrawn. So uh, Canada is still welcome to join the United States anytime that they want. So this was clearly a long time ago. Uh, and those are the three founding documents though. And the, the words that a country uses to say, this is who we are and why we exist. Those things are important. And so what was being conserved by conservatives in the United States was a liberal tradition. I mean, you wouldn't call it libertarian necessarily, but clearly the um, Articles of Confederation were very skeptical of centralized power. The rewriting of the U.S. Constitution, the actual Constitution that was written in 1787 and then ratified between 1789 and 1791, had the Bill of Rights, it had a set of amendments that were explicitly to limit the majoritarian excesses of the state. So the, 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 the claim is that sovereignty is embodied in we the people, and the government is actually a threat to that sovereignty. It's a remarkable document. So what was being conserved in the United States was a liberal tradition. And liberalism, for all its flaws, is a kind of unsatisfying second best. I will admit it's an unsatisfying second best. It is the product of 400 years of incredibly bloody warfare 
in Europe particularly, about who gets to decide how everyone else lives. Right. Liberalism says, let's not do that. Let's not decide how everyone else lives. You have to be tolerant. And tolerant doesn't mean I accept things I like. Tolerance means I accept things I don't like. You get to do make some choices that I would disagree with. They're not the choices that I make, but it's up to you. And I cannot use the coercive powers of the state to force you to act as if you shared my beliefs. So that's a core part of what liberalism is. That, for a very long time, was what many, not all, but many conservatives in the U.S. were trying to conserve. Mm. And maybe the high watermark of that was between about 1981, where Ronald Reagan came to, into office, and 2001 or 2002, where we see basically the breaking of that consensus and the response to 9-11 and George W. Bush passing the Patriot Act and just trampling on civil liberties on a ver in a variety of ways and then invading Iraq. So the, since then, the U.S. has been, in my opinion, something much closer to a militarized police state. We have seen a right. big increase in the militarization of police. But there was... There was a 20-year period from 1981 to 2001, which was kind of my formative years intellectually. And young conservatives were all, they were for Reagan's rhetoric, at least, if not for his actions. Right. And so that was what being a Republican meant. It isn't necessarily what being a conservative is, though. And it turns out that for many young national conservatives, they would completely repudiate that kind of liberalism. Now, the, the, the conservatives, the Republicans in the United States were an uneasy coalition of libertarians and actual conservatives for who for a long time their main concern was the destruction or at least holding back of the Soviet bloc, the expansion of communism, the expansion of socialism. Now, libertarians are fine with that. Those, those are very repressive regimes. And so that – but as the threat – of socialism became less and less, and then at least external organized socialism became much less of a threat, the disagreements in other parts of that coalition started to strain it. Right. And so the what I've been talking about has was called by Frank Meyer and others who talked about it as a political movement, fusionism. Mm -hmm. And so the, the fusion was between Two groups who were kind of wary about each other, but they were able to form a pretty long-lasting political coalition. And in many ways, it was successful in at least competing for power against people who were much more explicitly statists. Mm -hmm. What I have seen in the past five or seven years is people like Tucker Carlson saying, you know, that Elizabeth Warren, she has a lot of good ideas. What we need to do is have a thoroughgoing industrial policy where all of the economy is planned, where all of the choices that people make are dictated by the state because the state is wiser than all of these individuals. And we'll be able to improve the lives of people who now find themselves powerless in the face of enormous social forces. Mm -hmm. Individuals are being infantilized. By a way that, in a way that I would, I used to associate with the left. Right. But now I see many of the members of the U.S. House and Senate who are Republicans saying, you know, people 
need help and the government is the best source to help them, people have no hope of surviving on their own. And so we're going to tell them how to live for their own good. And that to me is not conservatism. It's right. certainly not classical liberalism. Right. And and in that sense, it seems that there's a consensus on both the quote unquote left and right, the new left and right, whatever they're doing. And then I guess that kind of brings us back to the beginning of what you talked about, which is that I guess at that point, what the police, if, if they agree on economics and the way institutions are supposed to be run in the sense of all powerful and that kind of thing, industrial policy, what have you, I guess the political arena at that point is left to just different people bossing each other around, at least on social and cultural matters. I mean, what else is left, right? But the problem with that is my, in my story about liberalism, classical liberals are the ones who are deeply skeptical of anyone holding the power to boss other people around, right. including me. If you're a classical liberal, you don't want that power. And mm -hmm. the way I always try to explain it is classical liberals want to make sure that we never make a sword so powerful that it won't be wielded by our worst enemy immediately after the next election. Right. So the it, it is very seductive. It's very tempting to say, we have power right now. We could do great good works, and we should do them. The problem is that if you concentrate power like that in the government, you lose control of the power. The power continues. Control of the power is ephemeral because elections move things around. But very soon then, your worst enemy, and you know, maybe it's Nancy Pelosi, maybe it's Donald Trump. I'm not trying to make a partisan point. It's your worst enemy. Whoever you do not want to have power will be the ones that have power. So in the United States right now, what we're seeing is we've forgotten all the lessons of liberalism, and we're trying to concentrate power under the theory that my side will win forever. Right. Right. And the question I'm about to ask is, of course, like, you know, you or I can't statistically prove this, perhaps, but I, you know, I, I do want to hear your, your sort of speculation on, it, especially with your experience in the intellectual movements and so on. Like, what I noticed, and it seems like you had as well, based on some of the lines I read in your essay, um, that like, you know, when the sort of, especially around the, the Trump moment and that, and that sort of thing happened, a lot of people that I even knew that would use the word classical liberal libertarian, you know, they either got you know, sucked over to that side. And basically all of a sudden, you know, what Trump is saying made a lot of sense, uh, regardless of its, in my view, classical liberal content or not. We got other people now in the, the sort of, let's call it, well, we don't know if it's the full post-Trump era, but, you know, right now we have Biden as president and, you know, you even have some people that would have even said they were on that lowercase c conservative, maybe even leaning classical liberal side, all of a sudden thinking about industrial policy and Elizabeth Warren. Um, it always makes me wonder, is this just a sort of defeatism and people are actually switching gears or were they ever truly that classical liberal type to begin with? You know, like I said, I know it's a speculation, but it's an interesting classical liberal cultural observation I've always thought about. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that. I absolutely have thoughts on it. And you make a good point. The difficulty is that for many people, their idea that it was necessary to, um, control power was based on the fact that they saw themselves as not having power. Mm. Trump raises the possibility that people who have been excluded now have some chance of actually being in power. And um, I don't know if you remember from Lord of the Rings, but when Boromir is chasing Frodo 
around uh, trying to get the ring of power. It's, it, it's just some little hobbit that has this ring of power. If I can grab the ring of power, people all over the world will flock to my banner. I am convinced that I will lead a great army of righteousness. And that's very seductive. And so I think people who paid lip service to the uh, we should control power as long as they didn't have access to it were okay with having power once they thought they had a chance for the first time. The other thing is that you said defeatist. I would say defeated. The, the, mm. the, the thing that I get from many young national conservatives is that ship has already sailed. Let's suppose they would say, for the sake of argument, that once the Constitution actually was something to protect the rule of laws and individual liberties. The Democrats, the left, they have already gutted that. And so pretending that we should be limited by it is fighting with one hand behind our backs. What we need to do is say, that's over. The other side is committing war crimes. We need to commit war crimes too, because those rules have been overtaken by events. So I I would say it's a combination of those two things. One is the seductions of the ring of power, which is just irresistible to many people because they don't really believe in liberalism. And the other is, even for people who believe in liberalism, and I I would compare it to an institution. Suppose you believe that the world would be a better place if we're all trying to get to something at the same time, but there's not enough space, we should queue up, we should form a line. Hmm. Well, most people, if other people are forming a line, will also form a line. They won't try to cut in line. But if people start pressing ahead, at some point, the line breaks down. And even people who believe that the norm of a line is a good idea, they all crowd up to the front and try to elbow to to get there because other people are not obeying the line. So institutions may be hard, but they're fragile. When they shatter, they break like glass. Mm. And so the norms of liberalism in the U.S. for many people, even those who might have believed in liberalism, have shattered. And so they think they're at war. Right. And I have a couple of questions that I want to ask you about, like, you know, in terms of the looking ahead, the moving ahead. But before we move to that, I do want to stick a little bit more to the stuff we've been doing right now, which is basically the current moment, because I think there's a lot there to unpack, too. And wh- and one of the things I wanted to follow up on in terms of the current moment is, is a bit more of your reflection on fusionism in general. I think you did a really good job of tracing what its heyday was, when it sort of ended and what happened there. But I'd like to hear like a little bit more of your thoughts on like fusionism itself. There are still some people that think that if you can still find a lowercase c conservative somewhere in the sense that you described, and you can indeed find the classical liberals who are were not, for lack of a better words, frankly, hip- a little bit hypocritical, at say the least, in their belief, that these two people, you know, there's still the idea that there should be a forum for these folks and that they should get together and there might still be, in other words, a bit of hope left for fusionism. Uh, I'm not, I'd like you to sort of reflect on whether that project was overall successful for what it was and whether you think it should even be in the, uh, the riding and classical liberals heads as far as where do we go from here? Well, my essay, I contrasted fusionism with another alternative, which was remnantism. And many of many classical liberals are in their heart of hearts, when they wake up at night and they think in the deepness of night about their true beliefs, they're actually remnantists. Hmm. And a remnantist is one who believes there are deep truths. For some reason, these are not accepted by all the idiots around us. And what we need to do is go off by ourselves in a, forgive me, a log cabin, in, <laughs> maybe some somewhere pretty far out, 
so that we can keep alive the last flickering flames of truth. And so when the world comes to its senses, we will again be able to rejoin. And so Albert J. Nock, uh, who wrote Our Enemy, the State, came up with this idea of remnantism. It actually comes from the, the Old Testament. And the, 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 the notion of the remnant is that there are swings, there are dialectics. And the, it was the very success of what is now derisively called neoliberalism that I would say was classical liberalism. So the, neoliberalism is almost never used by someone who believes in that point of view. It's, it's used as an insult by outsiders. And there were excesses of neoliberal institutions that international institutions, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, that, that basically forced developing nations to adopt certain institutions that did benefit the large financial institutions, mostly of the United States and the UK. Right. And it was those, its own kind of planning in a, in a way, you know, and that, that's absolutely. where it went too far. Absolutely. And it, that that excess created a backlash against globalization and a big part of globalization that some netcons are now against in the United States uh, is that we have not done a very good job of compensating for the fact that by and large, international trade is a benefit for a nation. The argument for free trade is unilateral, but some people are helped and some people are hurt. And the people who have been hurt are concentrated in particular areas. In the United States, a lot of that is in Appalachia. A lot of that is in what's called the Rust Belt. And so the the disaffection of many people who, frankly, used to be Democrats. It's interesting to think that West Virginia and Arkansas used to be both Democrat-dominant states, and now they're both Republican-dominant states. But they're not classical liberals. They did not go in the direction of classical liberalism. They didn't go in the direction of globalization and openness. So the Republicans have found that the way to appeal to many of these people disaffected with neoliberalism is precisely to repudiate neoliberalism mm. and to, to favor protectionism and nationalism because the appeals to nationalism, and it's not very far from nationalism to race then it, it's very tempting to take the additional step. And when you're a national conservative, say, and the nation that I want to conserve is white and Christian. Right. And so that's real conservatism. That's the worst kind of European conservatism. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, that, I think, is why some people favor a kind of remnantism. If, if you favor classical liberalism and you're worried about excessive power of the state, then you're very likely to pull back and say, I don't see any hope for that, that fusion. Now, your question was, aren't there some people that we might still ally with? And one of the, I'm, I'm at Duke. I've been at a, an elite university for a long time. Something that's interesting to me is the extent to which old center leftists are my new allies. Mm -hmm. So people who basically, Bill Clinton, people who thought Bill Clinton was a good president, save for his sexual peccadilloes, but right. that, that sort of you know, being worried about trade, because uh, Bill Clinton was free trade. He was trying to reduce the deficit, fiscal responsibility. We're going to end the era of big government. The era of, of welfare is over. Uh, that's what I think there is some sort of centrist uh, 
coalition that it is possible to rebuild. But right now, there's there are no there's no party in the U.S. that represents that point of view. The Democrats have become so obsessed with identity politics, and they're tearing themselves apart over the Palestinian-Israeli uh, difficulties. Yep. Mm-hmm. That there, there, there's no hope in that direction, and the conservatives are running what would have looked like a sort of Stalinist program of plan, extreme central planning, yeah, and control of the economy, and a moralistic crusade about we're going to tell people how to act and think. Yeah, it it is amazing that if you if you don't. Uh say, you know, a Politburo or planning department, and you just use different words, all of a sudden, the, the fill in the blanks part, that's fine, as long as we're not calling it that. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and another current sort of moment question, then, like, you know, um, like, you know, for, 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 you know, people, and we sort of in this conversation sorted out the folks that, you know, might have said that they were classical liberal leaning, but ultimately wanted, uh, you know, whatever their Lord of the Rings power ring could provide that kind of stuff. But but actually sorting those people away from now what I'm going to ask about is like, you know, people that we can safely say, you know, these are, you know, for lack of a better term, classical liberals. These people are serious about it. Um, You mentioned, I'm trying to connect these two dots here. You mentioned that NatCons and other groups have sort of organ, uh, realized, excuse me, that some battles and certain moments have passed. Are there, hopefully you see what I'm trying to get to here. Are there certain moments that have indeed passed that classical liberals need to get their act together on, if you see what I'm trying to say. Like, not to say that, therefore, the solution is what the NatCons say or what other folks say, but at least that we have, there is some truth to some of these folks saying certain moments have passed, so we need solutions. In other words, then classical liberals need to have solutions for the current day, not keep beating the same drums that they did before or what have you. We can see this playing out in a number of countries, but the two where it's probably starkest are the U.S. and Chile. Now, it happens that I've done a lot of work in Chile. I have a lot of connections there. Chile is trying to rewrite their constitution. And Chile, for all of its flaws and problems with political repression, did adopt a set of open economic institutions. They have a floating exchange rate. They're mostly open to foreign trade. And they saw a huge increase in widely shared income per capita, but over the period of about 1984 until today. So they were about the level of Peru and everybody got very rich. Mm. And one of the big concerns in Chile right now is inequality. Now, classical liberals might well say, particularly if they're my sort and they come from the economic tradition, what are you people complaining about? You're rich as hell. You have become rich. You should be grateful. Well, people want more than a sense that they're now able to buy cell phones and microwaves. They want to feel like they're part of something larger than themselves. So what I see is that classical liberals have been woefully inadequate in explaining and justifying the moral component Mm. of why you would want market institutions. We have emphasized instead just the consequentialist features of that, Mm -hmm. leaving the field entirely open to people who say, and I think wrongly, but if it's unanswered, then, you know, in in, in court, if only one lawyer shows up, you're going to win. Right. So what, what I see is that we have just failed. We have abdicated 
the obligation to explain the moral position of two things. One, why participation in a fair market system actually is beneficial. We have failed to recognize that much of what passes for market system in the U.S. especially is croniest, Mm -hmm. that is largely contained, largely controlled by large corporations. We have allowed concentrations of economic power to metastasize into Mm -hmm. concentrations of political power. Yep. And have just we have conflated free markets with business. And so unsurprisingly, we really are vulnerable to criticisms that say this cronious system is immoral. People are getting money that don't deserve it. People have power and over others and they don't deserve it. So the I think we have been we were we were woefully unprepared, and you can really see this in Chile. If people get wealthy enough, they're going to start to worry about inequality. Poor countries, they'd like to become wealthy. Mm-hmm. But if all you do is help a country become wealthy, they're going to say, we should use government institutions to improve things. Mm-hmm. Now, who's this we? Government doesn't actually work this way, but we haven't tried to make that argument. So I think there really is, there has been an important failure among classical liberals um, who have emphasized the consequentialist at the expense of the deontological arguments for liberty. Mm-hmm. That the, the, the arguments for liberty as a moral matter, we have de-emphasized just under the assumption that people will, if they're rich, they'll shut up. And they won't. And they shouldn't. The other thing is that the argument for free trade and economic openness is that economic dynamism creates growth and prosperity. But that means that you see the sharp ascendancy and then decline of some industries. Mm. So in the, in the United States, there were three counties in northern Alabama that until about 20 years ago produced nearly a third of all the socks, the hosiery products that are made in the entire world. But about 20 years ago, there was a city in China, Datang, that started to develop its hosiery industry, and they make nearly half now. Those three counties in northern Alabama, uh, 30 40% unemployment, long-term unemployment, uh, OxyContin use, suicides. There's no hope in that sort of community. And so the argument for free trade assumes that people who used to do a job that now there's a comparative advantage somewhere else – will find a new job producing the thing that your country actually has a comparative advantage in. And that has not happened in the mm-hmm. United States. We have left those people behind. If it's really true that there are enough benefits, enough gains to the gainers to compensate the losses to the losers, then we need to take more social responsibility for ensuring that those who are least well off actually have some sort of life of dignity and some l- less sense of economic precariousness. Yeah. And and then there's the the question on top of that, which which you already outlined before, which is we have to have an honest discussion about how much of that is free trade versus free trade with air quotes. If if you know if it ends up being, you know, um actually you know, we had a conservative prime minister up here that one time said that a, a lot of the time these free trade agreements are just large commercial deals that benefit certain connected corporations. I mean, I was surprised sure, to hear that out of the mainstream mouth of a former prime minister, but that's what he yeah. said. And he said, and yeah. he actually said, this is Stephen Harper on our set, and he said, and this is from a guy who signed lots of free trade deals. So he right. kind of knows the game. So I think we need to have an honest conversation about 
you know, what that's what actually caused that. And we can't simply say, oh, it's just free trade. That sort of shoots our own feet, too. Yeah. 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 Right. So it, admitting that capitalism is susceptible to cronyism, because what happens so often is that people will see some cronyist activity and say, well, that's not capitalism. Okay, but capitalism in a democracy tends towards cronyism. We have Mm -hmm. to admit that. And that means that our side should be much more careful about separating markets and commerce. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and the, and the second part of it, too, which I really like that you said, and I totally agree with as well, is, is the idea that, you know, there's the commerce side on, on one hand, but part of the market, at least the way I think about this stuff, the free market, some of voluntary interaction, et cetera, is the social and cultural component, too, if we really look at market in the most basic sense. So I really like, you know, the way you put that, which is conflating this, you know, market with business uh, thing, because really, like, you know, commerce is one thing, but I think, like you said, I mean, anyone who tries to study some form of what humans do knows that there's a there's always a cultural and social component to our species that, you know, they're not just going to be happy, as you said, just, you know, sit in their room on their cell phone at some point. They are going to yeah. seek more. And I, and I agree. I think that a lot of um, classical liberals, not all, but I mean a lot, have uh, have been a little weak on this point, at least my observation as well. So it's interesting to, to hear you say that. I almost, think that we almost to- all. I, yeah. we, we have done a bad job. I, we as a group have done a bad job. And it's usually an afterthought if it's mentioned at all. Now, maybe that's mm-hmm. just because I'm an economist and I work in the part of political science called public choice. But my people have been terrible. Fair. There you go. You heard it here first, folks. And uh, and actually, you know what? I was going to jump into some stuff, but this is about the time to take the break. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mike Munger today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mike Munger today. So, Mike, our first half was great. We talked about a lot. We were just sort of at the tail end there talking a little bit more about the, the current moment for classical uh, liberalism, especially in the, the American scene. And you were pointing out some problems and, and some things that classical liberals have failed to focus on. Before I completely jump into that moving forward part, I have like sort of one more question in the same vein we were just following before the break. Um so in terms of current moment observations, I've noticed, uh, you know, that some classical liberals and, and uh, libertarians seem to completely check out of even uh, discussing day-to-day politics or, or really pay attention to. I don't mean like, you know, the, the scandals and what congressmen said what and who texted who and, and the Newsweek stuff. I mean, just, you know, generally paying attention to what hap- what's happening, what policies are on the table, what current governments are saying and so on. A sentiment among a lot of classical liberal libertarian circles often, well, we know through things like public choice and so on and so forth, these politicians are idiots, they're always going to mess things up, and so on and so forth. I know this is like a little bit of an inside baseball, very specific point here, but that strain of thought has always struck me as interesting when some people completely check out of paying attention to that. Um, I really can't tell if that's, again, another form of defeatism or realism, but I'm not so sure if that is the 100% the right way to go. I mean, in understanding public choice and the nature of institutions and being healthy cynical is one thing, but sort of 
shutting your mind off of it completely seems to be an, another. And I'm not sure if you, you had some thoughts and reflections on that, because I've noticed that's another thing in the current moment of a lot of classical liber- and liberal and libertarian circles. And again, is that realism or is that sort of plugging our ears in a bad way? I have two thoughts on that. Um, one is that many people on our side just have a Manichaean binary. Anything in markets is voluntary. Anything done by the state is coercive. I want nothing to do with coercion, and so I will not participate. I think that's wrong. There's all sorts of coercion in markets, and there's a lot of voluntary action in the state. So the fact that a group of us might try to get together and accomplish some shared object, I don't think we should rule that out. So the way that I think about it, and this actually comes from James Buchanan, one of the founders of Public Choice, if I hire you to put a roof on my house and I offer you $1,000 for the shingles and $4,000 for the labor, and I give you the $1,000 in advance for the shingles and you run off with it, then there's some mechanism that we have where you will be coerced to carry out your promise. And we've actually agreed on that in advance. We want there to be coercion because if I can't sign binding agreements in a private market setting, that means that I'm being denied liberty. I cannot engage in mutually beneficial transactions. So there's a kind of voluntary coercion there. Well, that requires unanimous consent. You have to consent and I have to consent. But if we both do, we'll be coerced if we violate the terms of our agreement. Well, what if instead of putting a roof on, we wanted to... Uh, do a mosquito control problem because a bunch of people have old tires and there's some swamp near our house. We're worried about malaria, but 20 of us have to do this. Hmm. So we all agree that we will all contribute $200 and that will solve the mosquito problem, but then one of us refuses to do it. Well, it would be just as, it was unanimous. We all agreed. We voluntarily agreed. Right. It would be the same thing then for me to renege and say that I'm not going to pay. What if you scale that up far enough, it's at least possible to imagine that there are collective activities that we all might sign off on and be better off as a result. And so ruling out all collective activities, ruling out participating in something like Wikipedia, that's not a market transaction at all. It is a collective cooperative group of people that are acting together for other reasons. So there's all sorts of collective activities that are not market that are still, I think, something that we should try to endorse. Now, the question of politics you can say two things that both can be true. I look at these candidates and I really don't like them. Neither one of them is espousing the position that I want. But one of them is way not as bad as the other. And it makes a big difference that that person and not the other one is selected. And so my participation, particularly in local politics, can actually make a difference. So my, the, the, the two things then I want to say is there are many collective activities that are much closer to being voluntary. They're not really coercive. So that Manichaean good, bad binary between market and state, I just don't mm-hmm. buy into. There's many, what we call the state. So there's a whole bunch of collective activities that I think our, the classical liberals should want and are certainly are morally authorized to participate in. The other thing is that even if no one is perfect, it's still true that 
one might be much better than the other, and your participation can help bring about that state of affairs. So I see the I, I run for office every even numbered year. I am running for North Carolina General Assembly, House of Representatives, District 40. I just signed up on Tuesday. So in November of 2024. Um, I'm actually running for office, as I always do. I learn a lot from participating that way. I get to a talk to a lot of citizens and learn mm-hmm. what policy beliefs they have. Now, some of those are disturbing, but I, I might as well find out something about what the pro- how the process is working. To do otherwise is to buy into remnantism, where you're going to go off and live by yourself and hope you can keep alive the last flickering flames of truth, because no one else is smart enough to understand what a genius you are. Hmm. Well, that's basically the Unabomber. So I'm, 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 I am not such a fan of remnantism. I think we not only are allowed, but have a moral obligation to participate in these kind of collective social activities. It's a much harder argument to make, though, if you're not talking about local elections. You're talking about right. state and national parties. That's not really a plausible argument. It's not very persuasive. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was actually about to say that, too, that I think the, the best case for the kind of thing you're talking about. And I've even noticed, too, because I think before we recorded, I, I had noted, too, I, I sort of moved outside of a bigger city and into a smaller community. There's a county, there's a township. And I've actually just even noticed the sort of night and day difference between the best case scenario for some sort of, quote unquote, government or sort of council of people doing things or whatever. Like you do see the the best side of it, if there is any. At the more local level. Better. All it has to be is better. Something's going to happen. Best best is an illusion. Yeah. It can be better. Yes. And it is a lot better, I should say, too. I don't want to discount either. At least in my experience moving from Ottawa, Canada to where I am now, uh, like it it has been a lot better. So that's very interesting, too. I mean, I definitely complain less when my nice rural roads actually plowed by the modest amount of taxes that I'm paying. So, I mean, and it it makes sense to act collectively. If you had to contract for that yourself or have your own snow plow, that doesn't make any sense. Yep, there's exactly. Um. Okay, so now like I want to dive for the last swing of our conversation here a little bit more direct and into the, you know, we talked a lot about the current moment, what's going on, problems, the way people think, etc. Moving ahead then, I have ultimately just punchline, I'll, I'll give you an advance, like I, the last sort of thing I'm going to ask you is about a little bit more an elaboration on on, on your future view of, of what classical liberals can and can't do. But before we get there, um, I want to talk about one thing I've noticed is sort of happening. It's a little intellectual trend. Um, th- there seems to be a lot of people right now, and I've even written a couple times for one of these websites like called Liberal Currents, for example. Um, you know, some folks think that the project really should be maybe there's a discussion and a realm for we all just, you know, start going to a lowercase l liberal, you know, like liberalism. It, it, you know, uh, if, if we agree that NatCons are abandoning any lowercase l liberal market principles and we believe that the, the quote unquote state left are abandoning any sort of traditional, it's called social injustice, lowercase l, liberal principles. Maybe that sort of leaves that vacuum where a bunch of lowercase l liberals, you know, we, we can we can nibble and nudge each other on how much welfare there should be and little percentage points. But overall, is there that gap there for just straight up lowercase l liberalism? That seems to be an intellectual trend among many. And I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. That articulates very well with my claim with the what I find the people that I'm most simpatico with are kind of old center leftists who would call themselves liberal. Now, in the U.S., this may be different uh, in Canada, but in the U.S., 
uh, the left, they call themselves progressives. They're right. not liberals. They're progressives. Yep. So they are, they are abandoning that label. Mm-hmm. And there's the, the, the old center left uh, sort of Bill Clinton types, many of whom in a university actually are committed to education. They're uncomfortable with this sort of uh, identity politics emphasis. They actually believe that people should be educated in the classic, even though they themselves happen to have sort of left liberal views. So I think that's a great idea. It, it has been abdicated by the left who started to call themselves progressives, and it would be attractive. The, the classical uh, adjective preceding it makes a bunch of center leftists uncomfortable. But if we just call ourselves liberal, now that, now that, that, is, uh, that room is vacant because it's been moved out of, they moved into progressivism, uh, I know Brian Kaplan, for example, has long advocated for that. We should just call ourselves liberal. Um, now I'm not sure that I want to look to Brian Kaplan as having his finger on the pulse of political, uh, strategy because he, right. he, his, 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 but he, but he's right in this case. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the moving, reclaiming liberalism, and that's what Friedrich Hayek wanted to call this. So the, 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 the liberty movement is in fact liberalism. And the nice thing about it is that it is historically sensible because liberalism was the recognition that if you create a prize, which is power over people, the competition for that prize will tear your society apart. And so what you have to do is say, no one gets to have power over other people. That's what mm-hmm. liberalism is. Autonomy. We have to respect the wishes of other people, even if we don't like them. Right. Yeah. And, and just to reflect on something you said, you're not sure if it's the same kind of trends in Canada or other places. But I, I can at least speak for Canada, at least in my own observation. I think the same type of things happening here. I mean, we actually have a capital L liberal party of Canada and they're currently the, the current government. And a lot of people, even people that would have considered themselves lowercase L liberals back in sort of our own 90s moment with previous prime ministers and stuff. Um, a lot of people that would have happily voted for that capital L liberal party back in the 90s. I've even heard and talked to their skeptical that What's really happening now is the current prime minister sort of pulling everything into that more capital P progressive direction. A lot more loosey-goosey talk about spending, industrial planning. Here's another government department to tie your shoes or whatever else, right? So I think, you know, there might be that kind of moment here in Canada too. It, it, it does sort of bring me to my next question. This might be a little redundant, but maybe not. Like so, But for those that maybe are skeptical of that lowercase L liberal, I want to talk to some center-left people or whatever else, and more just like, you know, the people that find themselves, I guess, I think, like you said in the essay, cast out of the kingdom, if you will, um, people that are still saying, yeah, I'm a classical liberal. I just don't don't know what to do next. Um, you know, what, what do you think, you know, uh, the, the future sort of looks like? I'm, not, I'm certainly not asking you to lay out the plan here, but but what are your thoughts on what what are the next best steps? I mean, we, we know we can do conferences and seminars. A lot of classical liberals seem very good at that. But, you know, what else do you think you'd encourage? The problem for many of us is we are seeing what I called in the essay, the classical liberal diaspora. And so the the diaspora is that a people who had a homeland have been cast out of it and now they're scattered and they have to wander. And the, the wandering means that it's hard to say what the political home was. 
Now, there are, I have quite a few friends who call themselves small L libertarians who for years would vote big R Republican because they thought that was the lesser of two evils. Hmm. They're, and political scientists call that vote the loat, L-O-T-E, lesser of two evils. The problem with voting the loat is that evil's going to win. If the only two choices are evil, then evil is going to win. So I wonder if in the U.S. we have two major parties. There has it's been a long time since the parties have kind of reshuffled. What happened was they changed place. It used to be that the Democrats were the party of um, protectionism and racism. And now the Republicans have moved more in that direction. So that's why it used to be Alabama was 100% Democrat. Now it's 100% Republican. Nobody changed their mind about anything. They just changed their party affiliation. Right. So this is, this is a fluid moment. It might be possible that a relatively small but organized coalition of classical liberals, if we could say, here's what we're looking for, and here's what it would take to attract the vote of this bloc then we might be able to put a thumb on the scale because things are balanced to a razor's edge. Elections in the United States, presidential elections and many local elections are 49% to 51%. Hmm. They're very close. So even a small block of people who had a coherent ideology might be able to tip the scale. And uh, the political coalitions... Some of them are trying to appeal to the base, but some of them are also casting about for a way to win elections. There's a combination of strategic and ideological considerations. So I think that in some swing states, having some kind of organized political activity might help push the balance more in the direction that we would like to go. There's two problems with that. One is it's hard for us. I've been to a lot of libertarian meetings. It's very difficult for us to agree what it is that we want, much less to present a united front. Uh, because if we were the sort of people who agreed for the sake of power, we'd be a member of one of the two state-sponsored parties. Right. The fact that we're willing not to be a supporter of one of the two state-sponsored parties means that principle is more important to us than partisanship. So I, I think there, there is a difficulty, but the, we are in a position where party affiliations are fluid, people are changing, and it is the elections just lie on a razor's edge. And yeah. so it may be possible to have some impact. The difficulty of getting people excited about that, and I know the, in the United States, it looks like the next presidential election is going to be one horrible person against another horrible person. Right. So tipping the balance between those two, uh, it's hard to get very excited about. Right, right. And I think the, you, you mentioned the word like political, the term, I should say, political strategy before. And I think that really comes down to, I mean, if people are serious and they want to tip the balance of the scales and the system we have, you know, I think people need to, you know, especially in the classical liberal and libertarian circles, get used to the fact that there is a system to work with. It's, it's certainly not the best thing since sliced bread, but if you want to tip the scales, you have to be necessarily into political strategy mode not throw out all your principles but then i think it was like steve horowitz that said this one uh, on on facebook at one time um i remember this like somebody some there's some libertarian party of some sort of state posted something and steve basically said this is great and i agree with it but 
is this a philosophy club or a political party? And I think yeah. that's <laughs> what people need to get in the mentality of, at least in my thought, that if there's going to be political strategy, you need to think about being a political party, not like you said, uh, like philosophy club. Not that there's not room for that, but there might be room for both if, if, if people want to get serious. Most, most people have some mix of what I have called directional and destinationist sentiments. Right. Yeah. We talked about that before. Yeah. So the, in a, in a previous podcast mm -hmm. of, of this very show and directionalism means that I am going to try to choose the better of two or three alternatives if they lead to increased liberty and personal responsibility. It's not that I will oppose anything that doesn't match my libertopian ideals. And it's very difficult to go back and forth between those two things because it means that you're, you are accepting something less than the ideal. But one way, for example, at the local level, it's hard to, you talked about the system. We, we could change the system a little bit if we had something like ranked choice voting. Right. So if the if the institutional choice was ranked choice voting instead of first past the post, first past the post is, means we'll always have two effective parties. And of course, my argument for this as a big L Libertarian Party candidate, because when I run, I run as a, a member of the Libertarian Party, I bet I could get seven or eight percent in ranked choice voting. Whereas I get 3% because people don't want to waste their vote. But in ranked choice voting, you get to vote, not the load, you get to vote your actual belief. Right. And that, if we had ranked choice voting and libertarians started to get 7, 8, 11%, but the vote wasn't being wasted because if that person isn't one of the top two, your vote then reverts or is transferred to your second favorite candidate. And it still counts for that candidate we might get some libertarian candidates actually elected. And one of the things that makes us, would make us less feel like Martians or outsiders, you actually have to govern, then you're always a directionalist. It's very hard to be right. a pure destinationist if you're on a city council. Right. So what we need is some of our people on city councils, county commissions, provincial governments, we, we need some people who actually will be an existence proof. And we've seen this in the transformation in attitudes towards gay marriage, I think, in the United States. So more and more people know someone who's gay. They're not a terrible person that I have to be afraid of. It's just Uncle Tom. And so we're going to say, Tom, I like him. He's a fine fellow. He happens to be gay, but why wouldn't he be able to get married? And so you've, you've seen a very quick... Uh, transformation in just a couple of generations. Right. So the for many people, I think libertarians might be more scary than than gay people because you know libertarians like weird they do weird stuff. I I I I, I can't imagine that. But we could demystify it by having an existence proof. And yeah, that it, that person's I don't agree with them on everything, but they actually are in favor of responsible governance. They have principles they're trying to advance. So we need to try to make small scale institutional changes at the local level that will allow us to demonstrate we deserve mm. people's trust. And if we don't deserve people's trust, that's on us and we lose. Yep. And, and I suppose the punchline there too is if a bunch of people say, ah, we don't have time for that, who cares? Well, other people are going and doing it and they're just continuing the whole system. So yes. what do you do with that, right? Yeah. So, the, But that that is a hard problem. It is easier just to be secure that your principles are correct and go live in your own treehouse as a remnant. Right. 
than actually to engage and try to make public policy marginally better, knowing that it's going to be frustrating and it's going to take a lot of time. Yep, absolutely. I remember uh, when I was a a younger uh, entrepreneur that wanted to start a business and, and do Silicon Valley stuff. That the why I didn't do that is a different day. But I remember listening to the Steve Jobs quote when someone asked him why he wanted to make small change. He said, "Well, if you nudge a vector by one degree today, you're not going to see a difference." He said, "But check back with me in 20 years." So, yeah, you know, because yeah. that does expand, right? Yeah. Um, well, Mike, we're pretty much at the end of our time here. So I'm going to bring us to our, our formal wrap up. I mean, we've talked about a lot. I thought the conversation was great. So to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on it, as you know, I always want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me throw at you the official sort of last wrap up question. What do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether classical liberalism can be saved? In other words, if there's just one or two or a few takeaways you want someone to take, if anything, what would that be? It seems to me there are two things that I feel like I have learned recently. One is that we, me in particular, I have done a bad job in emphasizing the moral and social context in which people live their lives rather than just talking about the good consequences of market institutions. So the it it is a number of libertarian thinkers have been great about talking about morality but the 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 idea that we should just be appealing to people's sense of money of being better off in terms of prosperity i think is part of the reason that we've had trouble to our benefit the left is now doing that the left is saying, we don't understand why all these poor people aren't voting for us because we want to give them money. Well, the answer is many of them think that that's just wrong. And so the the conservatives are doing better than you would expect if you just looked at the attractiveness monetarily of the policies that are being proposed. And so we, we need to get back on the main line there and give a positive, optimistic vision of the future that our governance rules would lead to, why it's better for you in every way to pursue uh, the project of the expansion of liberty and personal responsibility. The second thing is that I hope people will think of some small, maybe one individual social activity that they can engage in in their local area. Maybe it's advocating for ranked choice voting. Maybe it's of running for school board. It's really interesting to run for office. So I find that it, it has changed the way that I feel about politics. I feel much more positive about it. The people that I run against, people that I disagree with, they're not evil. Many of them want the same things that I do. And I have become much more effective in advocating for my positions by understanding what the people that I disagree with actually want? What counts to them as a persuasive argument? So rather than dismissing them as being idiots because they disagree with me, I need to think in terms of how is it that I am not being persuasive since obviously I believe my positions are correct and I can do a better job of that by engaging even at a small local level. Very good. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So Mike Munger, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again.
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seguin. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.